variety of voices, so bear with me. I told Zach if I exit stage right because I'm sick, uh, he'll just come up and start reading where I, I left off. So, um, but hopefully, hopefully this this goes well. So to start off, um, I want to ask you about authority. So Josh mentioned authority, and it's kind of where we're going in the sermon series, but it's also it's also where we're kind of ending with the with the Sermon on the Mount. And we're left with this question of authority. So how do you relate to that word when you hear it? And what does it make you what does it make you think of? You know, what does your inner person react to you when you hear that word? You know, perhaps if you're like me, you're gonna have a superficially kind of deal with that. You know, you can superficially deal with that question. You may think of a you know, a cultural moment like a soldier saluting a general. You may think of uh, a judge entering a courtroom and the entire court rises uh, to, in honor of the judge to recognize his authority. Um, those are all relatable moments of authority that we would experience in our cultural context. And you might even, you know, if you're a little bit more spiritual, you might even think of a few verses. Um, you know, the Apostle Paul talking about giving uh, respect and honor to those who are in authority in Romans 13, be subject to the governing authorities. But what about at the heart level? You know, what about where the rubber really hits the road? How do, how do you feel about authority in its relation to you, your individual will and your individual desires? How about when you hear these definitions of authority? Authority is the right to affect to control over objects, individuals, and events. Or another definition, a person or group having the right to do or demand something, including the right to demand that other people do something. So how do you feel, how do I feel, about someone having the right to demand that I do something? To have the moral authority to tell you, this is what you must do. I am commanding you this as your authority, as one with authority over you. There's something about that, isn't it, that... that if we're, if we're honest, you know, doesn't quite sit right, you know, with our human will and the high value we put on individual freedom and autonomy. There's something about our implicit desire to have the right to live how we want to live, to do whatever appeals to us at any given time. Uh, and in today's passage, we're going to kind of come face to face with a startling display of authority that is going to challenge that desire that I have, that I'm sure you feel in yourself. Uh, for that human freedom on our own terms. So we're going to look at the passage in Matthew 28. I guess I'll grab a, grab a bulletin, but I'll get there real quick. Real short passage. Jesus has um, just gotten done with this you know, soaring discourse on the Sermon on the Mount. And Matthew records for us here what his hearers how his hearers react when he steps down from, from this message. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished as his teaching, at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Let's quick pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you um, for the Sermon on the Mount um, that we have sat under in these last uh, many weeks. And um, we thank you um, for your authority, and we thank you that you are God that made us, um, that controls us, that even rightly owns us. Um, but you don't own us like a dictator, but you own us like a father that loves us, um, that wants to direct us into life abundant. And Jesus has talked to us about that um, in the Sermon on the Mount. And today, Lord, help us to 
look squarely at how we truly feel at the heart level about your authority over us and uh, help us, Lord, to um, be humbled and submitted um, to the biblical authority that is, that is put for, for us in your word. Help us wrestle with that today. May your spirit come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so we've reached the end of the sermon, as, as, as mentioned. So this has been like the longest discourse, continuous discourse of Jesus' teaching recorded in the New Testament. And he's taught widely and insightfully on all the core principles of what we call kingdom, you know, kingdom living. We could call it kingdom living. What does it look like to flourish as God's people, living everyday life as disciples under his lordship and depending upon God as a good father? You know, last week, Brother Jeff expounded on Jesus' concluding words, the analogy of the two houses, um, which is really Jesus' parting warning that his hearers must consider what is the foundation that you are building on? What is, what is the foundation of your life? If it's anything other than the belief and obedience to the words of Jesus and Scripture, you know, your foundation is faulty, and it will not stand in the judgment. Those are hard, hard words um, from Jesus. And now today in these last two verses, we're going to see this effect. We're going to consider it and what it had on the original hearers, but we're also going to consider what effect it should have on us today as we too have set, sat under his teaching and heard his living and active words. So the main idea, if you're looking for the main idea of, of, of the, the sermon this morning, is what we believe about Jesus' authority and the authority of his teaching will determine the course of our life, both now and into eternity. So what we believe about Jesus' authority and the authority of his teaching will determine the course of our life, both now and into eternity. And we're going to look at that in three, three points. Um, we're going to look at that in the reality, which is in your bulletin, the reality of Christ's authority, the problem of Christ's authority, and then the preciousness uh, of Christ's authority. So starting with the, the reality of Christ's authority, um, I think Matthew, obviously the Holy Spirit knows what he's doing when he writes the scriptures and intentionally puts everything, purposely is purposeful of everything he puts in the word. And... Um, I think it's very intentional that Matthew turns us towards uh, the response of the crowd. You know, Jesus has expounded masterfully, he's expounded wisely, but he also did authoritatively, and that's what we saw um, in those verses. They're astonished at his teaching, as he's teaching with one with authority. So the crowd could clearly see um, that he was teaching with authority, and we can, we can really look at that in two, two ways. You know, first, Matthew says it for us right there, he explicitly corrected the scribes' teaching with his own teaching. And this is not keeping with the scribal authority of that day. So in that day, um, the authority really arose from a learned interpretation of the Torah or the Old Testament, the law, and citations of other teachers or other rabbis. Uh, so these scribes would often teach by citing the words or lessons that were previously passed down in the religious tradition. Um, so they would essentially appeal to man in a religious tradition for their authority. And in stark contrast to that, you know, Jesus comes here, and he's directly teaching from the Old Testament. We see it throughout the Gospels, but he's also teaching from his own authority. He self-references himself, and he doesn't hesitate to speak authoritatively against the religious tradition that was recognized even by, by his, his audience. Um, so we see that five times in the short discourse. If you just start with Matthew 21, if you want to flip back in your Bible, <clears throat> he says in verse 21, You have heard that it was said... To those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Verse 27, he says, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman lustful with lustful intent 
has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Later in verse 33, he says, Again, you have heard that it was said of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than that comes from evil. Verse 38, he says, You have heard what is said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if one slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him and turn to him the other also. And in verse 43, he says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So what's the pattern? You've heard it said, you've heard it said, but I say to you, I say to you. So th- th- think about being that original audience, and this is the tradition that you've grown up in, of a teacher. You, know, you greatly respect them in your community. They are, they are the, um, the religious authority in your life, and I'm sure they had, you know, I'm sure there were men of God that had, that had godly things to say about the Old Testament, but Jesus is not putting himself in that same kind of class. He is coming in and saying, you've heard it said. This has been your tradition. You've heard this said, but I say to you. And, you know, we can feel that, I think, even today when you read the Sermon on the Mount. You can feel it as, as, as personal as, you know, you, Quinn, have heard. You've heard it said, you know, an eye for an eye. But I say to you. you know, it, is that, it is that personal. Um, the living word of our Lord, as the Holy Spirit ministers, ministers to it, it to us, still speaks with that same kind of authority. Jesus reveals to us the spiritual intent behind God's law. These are the words of a religious teacher. Indeed, they're the words of God himself to us. Which leads to the second way that the reality of Jesus' authority was seen by the crowd through this discourse. Because he spoke not only as a great teacher, but as an authoritative representative from the Father. He spoke as a prophet of God, and not only as a prophet, but a chief prophet. A prophet of God who was God. He speaks as the Messiah promised in the Old Testament. And we can see this uh, in the ways that he refers to himself and how he positions himself in his teaching within the Sermon on the Mount. So starting with the Beatitudes at the beginning of, of Matthew 5, he speaks with absolute authority. He says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for there shall be the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called son of God's, son of God. So Jesus pronounces blessing with resolute and absolute certainty. Um, and his promises um, that are his promise to people that embody the beatitudes are, are absolute. You will receive the kingdom. You shall inherit the earth. You shall receive mercy. You shall see God. You shall be, receive sonship. These are authoritative claims. You know, he's not saying like you know more likely than not this is how it ends. You know, this is this is he is he is he just gets right into the beginning of his teaching as Matthew records it, and he's going right to this then this. Um, this is, these are the claims of no mere teacher. Later in verse 511, Jesus states, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on whose account? He says, on my account. He doesn't say God. You know, he doesn't say on, on, on account of God's people. He says, on my account, rejoice and be glad for your reward will be great in heaven. He's guaranteeing rewards for people that share in his suffering. <laughs> Uh, he's guaranteeing blessings through identification with him. So that's a staggering, another staggering claim 
Jesus' authority that these people would have, would have definitely been, been shocked at. And then verse 517, he positions himself as the fulfillment of the law. By implication, he really means he's the Messiah. And he says in verse 17, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. That's an outrageous claim for people that are sitting under the law. Um, that no mere teacher of the law would ever stand up and say, I'm the fulfillment of the law. They would, uh, they would not do that unless you were the Messiah, unless you were the one that was prophesied to come and rescue its people. Jesus is claiming in this sermon to be the son of David, the spotless lamb that would keep the law perfectly, completely from the heart, thus being able to rescue his people from slavery to sin and from the wrath of God by dying a sacrificial death in their place. That's a, that's a position of authority that he's claiming in this sermon. Lastly, we, we see in uh, 521, um, he claims the position of the final judge. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven on that day, many will say to me, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many works in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So Jesus is claiming to be the one sitting on the throne of judgment. He's claiming to be the judge that will be judging the living and the dead at the end of the, de- at the, end of the age. And he claims the title Lord. You know, he claims the authority of God's throne in the sermon. Um, so this is no mere teacher. This is the Son of God. This is the Messiah and the judge of the world. And if this sermon on the mount doesn't direct you towards the Christ that preached it, you're hearing it wrong. If this sermon is not pushing you towards the Christ that preached it, you're, you're not hearing with the ears of faith. This teaching is not simply a better way to live. It calls you to a Savior and, and to a King. Thomas Jefferson famously said on the Sermon on the Mount, I'm sure many of you are familiar with this, he said, it's the most sublime and benevolent code of morals which ever have been offered. The same Thomas Jefferson also is famous for constructing his own Bible by taking a razor and cutting out numerous sections of the New Testament and gluing them together, being sure to exclude the miracles of Jesus, the supernatural, including the resurrection, passages that portrayed Jesus as divine. Great ethical teaching, but, but, don't, but not the Savior. Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, a dead preacher in England, wrote on this when he was alive. He did right from the dead. That's uh, not possible. Um, he remarked uh, on, on such people like Jefferson who see this sermon as just a great ethic, a great way to live. This sermon, which we are told has no doctrine, which people like because it is not theological, can there be more tragic blindness than that which causes men to speak in such a foolish manner? The whole doctrine of the incarnation of Christ, his person and death, are all here. And I think, I think he nails that. I think you can't, some of these claims that we looked at, you can't read those claims any other way than someone claiming to be God. Um, you maybe don't accept the authority of those words, but that's his claim. There's no room, Jesus gives us no wiggle room to, to just see him as misunderstood. He didn't really think he was the Messiah. Um, he was misunderstood. He makes, he makes very clear claims about who he is. So this is what gives this, his message absolute and astonishing authority. It's spoken directly from the very mouth of the very Son of God. It's meant to reveal the heart of God 
in the authority of his son. And the crowd was astonished. Uh, They were befuddled by this simple carpenter from Galilee who spoke in such an extraordinary way and was not only one from God, but very God. So that's the reality of Christ's authority. That's the reality of which he spoke. It's the reality that um, hit the people listening uh, to him. It's objectively true. It's objectively authoritative, fully authoritative, based upon his divinity. If he's God, you know, he has absolute authority. There's no, there's no greater authority than God, the one who, who exists in and of himself. Um, but it's authoritative even if his hearers don't believe it. And even in this text, the crowd, the, the statement the crowds were astonished really is, um, is actually leaving open the possibility of multiple emotional responses to Christ's teaching by the audience. It wasn't, um, you know, they were astonished and believed. It wasn't they, you know, um, you know were humbled. Uh, it really leaves open multiple responses. There's probably people that walked out of there very angry. Um, there's probably people that, that were maybe just taken back by the claims he made but weren't ready to quite accept them as they were. Um, it leaves open the possibility that, that not all there res- you know, had a reaction that resulted in belief or submission. So that brings us to the, to the second point of the sermon, which is the problem of Christ's authority. The reality of Christ's authority and the authority of his teaching naturally poses a problem for us as fallen humanity, who in our sinful flesh seek to establish our individual selves as the authority in our lives. Thus, when we hear Christ's words, we don't necessarily recognize him as authoritative over us and our lives. There was a uh, Greek philosopher, Protagoras, who lived 500 years before Christ, and there's a phrase that he's, he's most famous for that maybe, maybe some of you have heard. Maybe you've heard people repeat it, and they maybe don't know where, where exactly it came from, but it's, man is the measure of all things. Man is the measure of all things. It was this idea that in a proclamation that the human is the center of all evolved of reality. It's viewing reality through the view that humans are at the center of the universe rather than God. And obviously this is the kind of worldview that creates, you know, makes way for relativism, the belief that categories of good and evil um, are ultimately a matter of personal preference or societal preference. There's no divine lawgiver. There's no God that speaks or commands his creation to live according to his will or out of himself created the very world that we see and everything that exists. There's no Christ. There's no coming king. There's no judgment. This question of, of, this question of God's authority is, is older, though, than that, isn't it? It's older than Protagoras. It's older than 500 years. Indeed, as Christians, for those, those of you that know, um, you know some of the Bible, we, we, see it, we see it three pages into the Bible. Um, from the first rebellion in heaven that resulted in the fall of Satan and the angels that followed him to the fall of our first parents, Adam and Eve, when the serpent tempted them to doubt God's goodness and the clarity of his commands to not eat of the fruit. So we see in Genesis 3, three pages into your Bible, when the serpent deceitfully asked Eve, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Are you sure that's what he said? Essentially is what he's asking her. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the, tree, the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of, the, eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw 
that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes. And that the tree was desired was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. She gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Satan got Eve to doubt the authority and goodness of God. She restated the commandment to the serpent. She knew it. But she's desired to have the forbidden fruit. She sought to break, break, break free from the authority of God and do what was pleasing to her own eyes. Uh, the Reformation Study Bible uh, states on this point, the illicit taking of this fruit involves the assertion of human autonomy, the attempt to govern apart from God. It's removing God from that center and trying to make yourself the measure of all things. She sought to be her own measure of right and wrong and failed to obey the word of God. And it's interesting that God created man and woman, isn't it, in the middle of a garden surrounded by and showered in blessing, sinless, upright. He offers eternal life even to them. But what does he demand? Obedience, active obedience. He demands it. Even in the garden prior to the fall, God demands obedience and submission to his authority. The call to obedience and submission to God's authority is not a result of sin in the fall. It is an inherent reality of what it means to be a moral creature created by God. We're all creatures created by God. It's a fact of what it means to be made in his image, to be made to glorify him, for people to have a capacity to uh, do good and to do evil. That's what it means to be made in the image of God. We're under his authority. And in the fullness of Revelation, we do know, we do, what do we know about Christ's hand in, in creation? Colossians 1.16 tells us, For by him, Jesus, and all, for by Jesus all things were created in heaven and earth, invisible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, or things that were, were all things created through him and for him. Thus, the one speaking in the Sermon on the Mount, the same person, which by which the very world was created, including the ears, as some people have said, of his hearers. He created the very ears of the people he's talking, talking to. Um, he, he has authority over them. You can't get a more authority than that. That's, that's ultimate. That's the trump card. Right? There's no more authority than I made you, I created you in my image. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 13, For there's no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists authorities resists which, which God has appointed and will incur judgment. And he's talking about governing authorities. Imperfect. Sinful. How much more so does the scriptures teach us about the danger of rejecting a perfect Christ, a perfect authority from God? Jesus himself has warned us about it, right? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father. And uh, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man, as Jeff talked about last week. Brother Jeff talked. A foolish man who, who built his house in the sand, and the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. I feel like that house sometimes. <laughs> I, I, I feel like a fool sometimes, building on the sand, trying to build my identity on, on, on a career, on accomplishment, on financial security, on seeking these things above the kingdom, not seeing the law of God as real and concrete, hard as nails, as C.S. Lewis talked about, but seeing it as flexible, like a spring. You know, it's got some firmness, but it's going to have a little bit of stretch to fit my whims. These 
There are things in the Sermon on the Mount that are hard to hear. They are painful to hear. And I want to gloss over them. I'm sure some of you have had that same feeling. You want to skim by them on a superficial level. You know, I don't want it to get too deep. I don't want it to penetrate my heart and really show those parts of my being and identity that I want to be closed off from the authority of an all-consuming Christ. That's the problem, isn't it? We are in our flesh desiring to be in our own authority. And we'll let, you know, we'll let Christ have authority if he's commanding us according to our desires, the things that we value, but as soon as those things start to cross in opposition, we try to relegate him to the back seat of our life. Someone can show us the verses. They can speak the wisdom. We can hear it, but refuse to submit. And that's the problem of Jesus' authority. It reveals our God complex. It reveals our desire to be our own authority. And we, by our sinful nature, do not want to submit to that authority. But Jesus tells us without the submission, we will not see the kingdom. He, he, he makes it as clear as he can. Without that submission, you will not see the kingdom. There's no bigger problem than that for any human being than, than that question right there of seeing the kingdom by recognizing God's authority over us. That is, the, that is the biggest problem or crisis any of us could, could face. But there's good news, and that brings us to the preciousness of Christ's authority. By recognizing the problem, you've got to recognize the problem first. The way is paved for us to hear the good news of Christ's authority. Paradoxically, all right, this is very paradoxical to our culture and our flesh. The submission of our whole selves to Christ is the only route to wholeness and true freedom. Submission of our whole selves to Christ is the only route to wholeness and true human freedom. Contrary to the late popular atheist Christopher Hitchens, Jesus is not a permanent, unalterable, celestial despot that is subjecting us to continual surveillance and convicting us of even thought crime, and who regards us as private property even after we die. That's a very bleak way of looking at Christ, right? But you can see how you just look at authority. We think of authority, it's kind of back to that. It's not, it's not you think someone pounding the desk, um, ruling over you, squashing out your freedom. That's not, the, that's not the Christ of the Bible. He has real authority. He has more authority than, than any human representative on earth. But he's also the teacher that says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. That's, that's the Jesus that created the world, that, that calls to us so tenderly. It's a yoke. It's real. It's on your back. You're under it. So it's real. It's real authority over you, but it's easy, and it's rest for your souls. So this is the Savior who sweats drops of blood in the garden for his people, awaiting an agonizing death, to be beaten and humiliated and executed with criminals, who for our sake was made to be sin, who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God, that we might become righteous, that God put upon him the sin of his people so that we could be reconciled to God, reconciled to our creator, not, and not just as a creator, not just as a, an authority over us, but also as a, as a father, as a loving father. So this is our high priest who now even intercedes for us at the right hand of God, who calls us brothers and sisters and co-heirs of his kingdom. So the commands of the Lord are good, they're for our good, and they're for, for, the, best, they're for the best life, not just now, but for eternity. And that is why the psalmist in Psalm 1 can say, this is before Jesus, right? Obviously, 
we know the whole scripture points to Jesus, but back in the Psalms, the psalmist says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. And watch this imagery next. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. And all that it does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. The commands of the Lord have always been good. They are reflective of true reality, and they're reflective of true and loving God that gives them to us. The problem has never been with the commands of the Lord. The problem is with us and our sinful condition. Like our father Adam and our mother Eve, we doubt the goodness of God and think life would be better on our own terms, that we, that we would be better off being the measure of right and wrong. We'd be better off asserting human autonomy, perceived human autonomy. But it's a great illustration that I've heard before. That would be like a kite. It's like a kite tugging at a string, wanting to f- fly free, right? It's thinking if it can just get detached from that string, it can just get detached from that authority, it could, it could really have freedom. It could really fly. But we know what's going to happen, right? Once that kite gets off the string, it's going to end up in a pile of sticks and paper. Jesus has shown us here on the Sermon on the Mount that obedience to his words is the sure foundation. Being poor in spirit, spiritually bankrupt before God, with nothing to offer, bowed to his authority is the way to blessing and is the way to seeing God, which is ultimately what the human soul wants, is to see God, to behold God, to be reunited to him. And that's the heart of the matter, seeing God. And if you'd allow me to revisit one last definition of authority, it's this. Power is something enforced by law in a constitutional state. But authority depends on recognition by the subjects and their confidence in the one that yields the authority. Thus, authority has rightly been called a relational concept. Authority is a relational concept. It's not about compliance It's not about rule-keeping. It's ultimately about a relationship, being in a relationship with that authority. And that is what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. It's about a relationship with God who made us and offers us a path back to him through Jesus Christ, accepting him as our Savior, accepting him as our Lord, and obeying his commands. So in the final analysis, we're always serving someone or something There's no such thing as an autonomous human being. As much as people want that and they say they value that, the Bible is is graphic in depicting us as slaves, either to righteousness or unrighteousness. (coughs) Paul says in Romans 6, Thanks be to God that that you who were once slaves of sin, you were once slaves of sin and bondage to sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching which you, you were committed and having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For, for just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now you present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. We're all slaves to something. We're all serving something, to use a term probably more recognized today. We're all serving something. There's no such thing as raw human autonomy. As the great hymn writer Bob Dylan said, but you're, you're going to have to serve somebody, yes. You're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, it may be the devil. 
or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. And that's very profound but true, simple but true. You, you are always serving something or someone, and it ought to be the one that made you. It ought to be the one that loves, loves you and uh, who designed you to know him and to be restored to fellowship to him. So what are you and I serving? Who are we serving? And how do we, how do we need to feel this authority of Jesus in his teaching? There's no neutrality. Human neutrality is also a myth. Either slaves to sin, slaves to righteousness, either building on the rock or building on the sand. Jesus gives us no middle ground, but he lovingly, firmly issues his authoritative message of the kingdom and invites us into it. So will you hear and follow him? Will you hear Jesus with a heart of faith? Will you heed his words? What wrong beliefs of Jesus and his authority do we need his grace to address right now in our lives? I know I have them. And it sounds hard. It sounds real hard sometimes, doesn't it? But his, his yoke is easy. Remember that. And his path is always the path to true joy and freedom. The end of that path is always true joy and true human freedom as it was designed. And on the contrary, the other path is seeking our own authority only leads to sadness, it leads to bondage, it leads to eternal ruin. It leads to marring of the image of God that each one of us has. And I ask that you would consider these things with me in this week. Pray that we might be a church that hears the authoritative words of Christ and obey them with a heart of faith. And just think of the amazing promises that Jesus gives to us in the Beatitudes and that each one of those would be true for each one of us and as a body. Let us pray.